People, get ready to explore in a way you never have before with the Defender 110. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design, a reimagined exterior, a robust interior, a superior off-road capability. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. It has powerful innovations like intuitive driver display. Whether you're headed to uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration, the Defender 110 is up to the challenge. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, look, I'm sure you take a lot of vitamins. Maybe you take a daily multivitamin. Maybe you take ones to boost your immunity or ones to help with alertness. What about your cells? Are you giving your cells the full nutrition they need, especially as we age? I am, thanks to Solgar. Solgar is part of my daily routine, thanks to their cellular nutrition line. Give yourself a daily collection of nutrients designed to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more and use promo code MarkMarin, all one word, to get 20% off. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? How's it going? Where are we at? It's been a weird few days, I got to be honest, a weird few days, but I'm excited today. going to talk to um, Warren Zanes. Warren Z- I talked to his brother, Dan. Now, these two guys were in the Del Fuegos. They're, that was a Boston band, had a kind of a hit or two, a few good records, but they were around when I was in college in Boston. I remember the Del Fuegos. I liked the Del Fuegos. And Warren was the little brother of Dan and the guitar player in the band. And he's gone on to do a lot of amazing stuff. I mean, I rem- we talked about the rock scene in Boston and stuff, but he's gone on to, uh, look, he, he's, he's still making music, this dude. He's almost my age and still just putting this stuff out. But he got his PhD in visual and cultural studies and went on to write several music biographies, including Dusty Springfield's Dusty in Memphis, that was for that 33 and a third series. Revolutions in Sound, Warner Brothers Records, the first 50 years. That, uh, that's a history book almost. And Petty, the biography. Seriously, the book on Petty. Now, his new book is pretty specific. It's called Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Now, I got this thing. And look, I'm, a, I'm as much a Bruce fan as any medium spectrum Bruce fans for those people on the spectrum of Bruce Springsteen fandom. You know, I I'm not way over to the left, but I enjoy many of the records, but there's still a lot of stuff I don't listen to. I don't care about, but there's a handful of records I fucking love. So I'm in, I'm just not like crazy, but I was curious what the angle was on this book to really take on that particular record. And he does something kind of amazing with it. He contextualizes it not only in Bruce's career, but in the culture at the time, the technology of the time, the music uh, at the time, the way music were sold at the time, expectations around Bruce and music in general, the shifting of the musical tides into, you know, perhaps uh, artists having a little more control or at least entering some sort of lo-fi zone, the influence of No Wave on Springsteen, i.e. Suicide that band 
and and just you know sort of the struggle to to figure out what to do with what was essentially and i i think initially a set of demos and how to make it a record the set of demos from a technology that didn't really interface with high-end audio gear there was kind of a suspense to it all you know how are we going to do it you know can we do these songs with the band i mean this is after the river and before born in the usa and during nebraska he laid down like eight or nine tracks of born in the usa in the studio but stuck it but stayed with the nebraska project and just you know what it meant to people having never heard a record like that especially at that level but uh it's like a, it's an exciting read it's a it's kind of a page turner now also the other day on may 16th today's may 18th if you're listening to this the day it dropped may 16th was the third anniversary of of Lynn Shelton's passing and she's missed by everybody who loved her or knew her anybody who had ever come in touch with her is you know when you think about it was you know profoundly moved by this person and and I didn't I didn't really realize the day um the day before on the 15th it wasn't until the 16th that I realized it that it was the day but some things happened man some things happened on the 16th that I don't know. I, you know, I'm not, look, I'm, I'm not a, a, a mystical guy, but sometimes you got to read the signs, man. Sometimes you got to read the signs. I've got a black eye. Uh, my nose is scratched up and I've got a puncture wound on my right cheek, small puncture wound. So what happened on the 15th, May 15th, I've been, I feel like I've been having allergies. I'm a little congested. I feel a little scratchy in the throat. I feel like pressure in my head. It's been a long time since I took a COVID test. Not that long, but there's always the same weird suspense to it. I think, oh, maybe I got COVID. I take the test. Then I cover the test because I want to do the quick reveal at 15 minutes. The ta-da, one or two lines, one line, no COVID. So I'm feeling a little, I think it's allergies. I don't know. I don't feel like I have a cold. It doesn't matter. So I decide, look, man, go hit the mountain. Just get up there. You know, just, you know, get some exercise, push yourself a little bit, get outside, breathe a bit. Let's, 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 let's get to it. Let's process. And then I decided like, well, what am I going to listen to music wise? Um, and I just talked to my buddy, Sam, and he was telling me about his uh, daughter who had gone to, uh, to the Taylor Swift concert and they had dressed up uh, as like, I think characters in Taylor Swift songs and, and just, she's like a Swifty. This is a thing, you know, these, there, there are profound and passionate and very committed, crazy Taylor Swift fans. I mean, I understand a lot of them are teenage girls and I, and I understand that that's where fandom happens, but look, I'm a open-minded guy and I like music and I want to try to figure out what it is about Taylor Swift that n- everyone never shuts up about. I mean, you can't like you can't go a day without hearing about Taylor Swift, at least on my phone. I don't know why. Maybe it's some of the music feed. I don't know. But people love Taylor Swift. Grownups, too. Now, I tried this once before to get hold of Taylor Swift, to understand the Taylor Swift thing. I And I did it on a hike as well. I did it. I did. I was hiking. I think I listened to, is it one called Folklore? 
I tried that one on a hike once and I, I was like, all right, I get it. It's okay. Maybe I don't get it, but it's not for me. You know, it's uh, I, I whatever. Didn't do much. So because I talked to Sam, I'm like, well, fuck it. Let's give it another try. So I put in and I'm seeing these on uh, these reels of, you know, these Taylor Swift events, these big concerts, ticket, you know, over, over like it's like a international phenomenon. So I'm like, all right, give it another try, man. So I put in this. New, I guess it's the new record, is it? Midnights. So I put that on and I start hiking. And I'm like, all right. So I get it. She's not these. It's it's pop music, but it's not dance music. It's sort of like it's emotional. There's a lot of longing and sadness and you know isolation and processing these sort of overwhelming uh, feelings of melancholy. There's a lot of uh, colors in her poetry. I get it. I, I understand why the entire world, like of 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 teenage emotions, you know, runs through this music. I get it because I think I'm emotionally probably 14 or 15, you know, practically speaking, um, stifled. I get it, but like, still, I'm sort of like, it's not really for me. But I understand it now, and it's good music. And then some 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 song comes on a song called you know bigger than the whole sky and and i start you know getting emotional because it's a grief song and it's a very precise grief song and it's not the the language is vague enough for the the heartbreak in the song to not be tethered to you know just a relationship breaking up but it's about loss and it got me, man. And I'm like, wow, you know, and it made me think about Lynn and it made me sort of, you know, there are certain songs that can carry your grief and allow you to have it because they hold it. And it was one of those songs. There's other songs like that, that I have found throughout my process, you know, and then this is like the day before the anniversary of Lynn's death, which I hadn't really clocked yet, but I'm having these feels on the mountain. And then I get to the top of the mountain and I do what I always do. I do these, a, a couple of stretches. Usually I go into the old Chinese lady stretch, which is just sort of squatting down and, you know, just dropping into the bucket of your hips to stretch your back. And I'm all sweaty and it's kind of hot. And then I stand up like I usually do. And I get a head rush. And I, th- this happens every time I do this hike. And I'm listening to Taylor Swift, Bigger Than the Whole Sky. And I get this head rush. And every time I do this, I always think to myself, it's amazing I haven't passed out. So when I stand up, I'm like woozy. And I'm like, holy fuck. And then I go to crouch back down because I felt too woozy. And in the process of crouching back down into the old Chinese lady stretch, I must have blacked out. So the next thing I know... I'm woken up by my face smashing onto the dirt, onto the gravel, onto the rock. And there's that moment where I'm like, I didn't feel myself go out. And I have to, you know, you have to figure out, you have to recalibrate. I'm like, oh shit, I know what happened. I'm on the top of the mountain alone and I just smashed my face into the ground. So like, I, I kind of get, push myself up. I'm kneeling down because I'm kind of fucking out of it. I just fucking smashed into the ground and then blood's just pouring out of my face 
because I can see it's dripping onto my goddamn uh, legs. And I'm like, oh, fuck, did I break my nose? So I feel my nose. And my nose isn't broke. It's not coming out of my nose. It's coming out of this puncture in my cheek. And I'm out of it, man. There's blood all over the place, and my face is all full of dirt. But I have my water pack. And all the time, you know, Taylor Swift's just pounding in my brain. I have these thoughts. I'm like, man, a couple of thoughts hit me. It's like, that's the way to die, man. It's just to go out. Because I had no recollection of going out. And if I hadn't woke up to my face smashing into the ground, I wouldn't have been the wiser. I would have just been, you know, I would have entered the great frequency. Would not knowing any different. It would have been perfect. And then that was sort of like, I started thinking about Lynn. And I started thinking like, well, okay, this makes me a little less afraid of death. At least if it happens that way. (laughs) <laughs> without without too much processing. But it, oddly, the other thought was, God, I think I kind of miss drugs a little bit. Don't worry. I'm not in a, in a crisis, but I was sort of like, because that, you know, when you get a head rush, you know, the fact that every time I hike, I do this, and I feel the head rush, and I know what's happening, that it's kind of a freebie. I don't have to crouch. I don't have to do those stretches. So I pushed the limit this time, and I went down. And I'm listening to Taylor Swift. And I got to get back down the hill. And I'm bloody. I'm dehydrated. I know I need electrolytes. I know I, I, I rationed my water. I had water. I'm talking about this like it's some sort of hero's journey. I just fell down on the top of a hike. You know, and I texted Kit a picture of my face. And she freaked out. She's like, do you have to go to the doctor? Don't go to sleep. I'm like, I don't have a concussion. I, I didn't go out like that. I didn't go out because I hit my head. I went out because I... I I uh, hyperventilated or whatever it is. It was like, you know, the oxygen thing. And then I hit, I woke up when I hit my head. She's like, well, I'll get off work and I'll come. And I'm like, don't, I just relax. But if you want to get off work, come on. Okay, fine. Or, uh, you do. Okay. Yes. Care for me. Okay. So that happened. I'm walking down the hill and I use some water to wipe my face off. And I drank some water and I get down. And I see two guys who were there and I'm walking up to them and I'm bloodied and they're not saying nothing. I'm like, so I figure I had to explain myself. Yeah, I fell down up there on my face. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, man. And they're all standing at the top of this incline that I do all the time, which is now a decline. They're like, what's the best way to go down? I'm like, I don't know. You just got to find a way, find an angle. And I usually run down. And for some reason I felt like I needed to prove myself. So I'm bloodied. I'm like woozy. And now I'm running down the mountain like a fucking idiot. So I go down the mountain. I see two other people. They say nothing. Hey, how's it going? Well, I don't know. I have blood all over my face. Maybe are you all right would be nice. Not that I'm looking for that. I knew I was all right. So I get home and I clean up. I shower up. I drink a lot of electrolytes. And I'm like, you know, I think I believe I'm okay. But Kit, you know, comes and I'm like, all right, well, I, I belong to this urgent care, this solace thing. I, you know, I, I paid for it. Let's use it. So I call up. I said, maybe I should come get checked out. And Kit's like, you know, you can't go hiking by yourself. And I'm like, I'm not that fucking old yet. All right. I know I'm old. We both know I'm old. Er, But I'm not like, I'm not like I can't hike by myself old. I mean, come on, man. It's just like it could have happened any day. It was bound to happen. What? I got to hike with another guy in case of accident. Am I, am I, is that, is that the age I'm at now? So I can't get into the urgent care till eight. We go out and eat. I go in. I see the doctor. They do blood work. Everything's great. 
pulse is great. Fucking blood pressure's great. Everything's good. He asked me if I had, uh, you know, any heart pains or chest or arrhythmias or nauseousness or diarrhea. I'm mean, like, I would have told you if I shit my pants on the mountain, I think. Why is every, why is there always a diarrhea question involved? No, I mean, I went down because like I didn't get enough oxygen in my brain. Your blood pressure goes down when you work out. I already have a little blood pressure. I went down. So they patched me up a little bit. And then at the end of it, you know, as the doc is walking out and Kit's sitting there, my buddy Ned actually works over there as a nurse, the guy, my drummer, Ned Brower. And he was there. It's kind of fun. As the doctor's walking out, he's like, well, maybe, you know, next time you go up, you don't go by yourself. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. And I look at Kit. I'm like, don't say, I no, I get it. I'm not. And I'm walking out. I'm like, did you tell him to say that? What, what, was this a setup? What's happening? I am not at the age where I can't hike alone. I will not accept it. Anyways, I'm all right, but I have a black eye. So then this happens. The next day is the actual anniversary of Lynn's passing. So the day I got to go do a uh, dynasty typewriter. I did an hour of all new stuff, oddly. And I talked about a lot of, I just talked about what I just talked about with you just now. But when I'm leaving for dynasty typewriter, there's a fucking crow on my porch, a fucking crow. And there's something wrong with it. And they're giant. They're like dinosaurs, man. He's just hanging out. Buster's a little curious about it in the window. And I walk up to this crow and I'm like, what's up? crow are you sick and now i'm like fuck what am i gonna do with a sick crow there's nothing you can do with a sick crow and i'm like i i'm like all right well do what you got to do and i went and did the gig all i'm thinking is like i hope that thing's gone or it's dead when i get back i don't want in between i don't know what to do with a dying crow with a dead crow you throw him away with a sick crow you just let him be sick until he disappears or dies but like a a, a crow in crisis i wouldn't even know who to call and then I'm like, what does it mean? Why is there a crow on my porch? And I was on stage. And I'm like, I got to look. Symbolism, crow, dying crow. And a crow symbolism is transformation, change. A dead crow is mourning. So it's kind of an interesting mixture for just a fucking coincidence on the day marking the anniversary of Lynn's passing, given the humming, the hummingbird situation. Look, man, all I know, the crow was gone when I got home and there was a coyote in the yard and we looked at each other and I'm like, dude, just go. So the trickster went away and the crow was gone. There you go. The title of my new record. So listen, Warren Zanes, Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska is available now wherever you get books. And it's a great book. And this is a great conversation. Here we go. You know, I've never really been a professional musician, but I, you know, I play. We share that. <laughs> no, you have. What was your nickname? Bo Orc Boy? <laughs> <laughs> Weren't you Orc Boy? I was Orc Boy. <laughs> Your research has already gone too deep. What are you talking about? <laughs> I lived in Boston in the 80s. Yeah, I knew that. I've got some Del Fuego single upstairs. I don't even think you're on. Yeah, uh, that's the first single. 
What was it? Uh, I, it's, uh, I always call her. I back. always call her. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, 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 an incredible sounding record. Good song. Yeah. Who was yeah. in that band? Uh, Dan and Tom, who were always there, and then Steve Morell, the original drummer, oh. who took mushrooms like right around the time uh, it was Halloween. Yeah. He took mushrooms at the Rat, freaked out, oh, and quit the band the next day. Wait, did wait, what did he end up doing? Uh, he's still playing. He, you know, he he ended yeah. up surviving, right? <laughs> because, like, when I was, I guess I was around, but I didn't club a lot. But like, at some point in the mid '80s, I was working at Edibles up in Coolidge Corner. Yeah, with you know the Salem '66 yeah. women, yeah, and yeah. with Tanya Donnelly, yeah. and you know, I <laughs> I talked to Kristen Hirsch in here, but before that. You know, like maybe 82, 83, my girlfriend's roommate was dating Randall from Scruffy. Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't <laughs> realize you went that deep. Sure, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I remember I remember seeing Steve Albini at The Rat. I remember seeing, I think, like, I remember the... I remember your first album. I remember when that was big. I was, I, like, I don't know when that, when the first El Fuego's album come out. It would have been, like, 84, yeah, right, so I was around, and then, and then I remember there's a, a, a big controversy. Do you remember the big controversy? The Miller commercial? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Let me start with those who came to our defense and those who didn't. Elvis me, Costello. I'll, okay, I'll set it up. This was a time, like, you guys had sort of a hit with uh, Backseat Nothing, right? Yeah, Backseat Nothing, then Nervous Don't and Run shaking. Wild. Don't Run Wild. And I Still Want You. Right. You know, but these these were, you couldn't call them... Hits, except you could still have regional hits at that time. And that was the first record? Uh, the second record was Boston Mass. That had I Still Want You and Don't Run Wild. Where's Back Nervous and nothing. Shaking? First record. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, But you guys were a big Boston band. You guys get a Miller commercial. And it was one of these image commercials where it's like Boston Mass. And it was it, you were the stars of the commercial. And you were yeah. playing on it. Well, it, it was intended to have a documentary style. Yeah. It was directed by Tim Newman, Randy Newman's cousin, who did the ZZ Top videos. Uh, but, you know, there it was, it was not a time in which you could safely do commercial work. Because it, then, it was back then, there were still, you could still sell out in that way. Like now, if you hold on to your ass and you and you hold on to your brand, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Well, you can't sell records anymore, so you've got to do something to stay in the game. So suddenly, these kind of opportunities became okay. Yeah, but also, it was just sort of like, if you could rise above, like if just your, your being on it was tongue-in-cheek to your fans. Like, if they just knew, like, he's just cash grab. You know, he doesn't give a fuck. You know, that happened as well. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you, at yeah. the end of the day, once we started to take heat for it, uh, I like to remind people that I'm actually not in that commercial. Oh, yeah. Because... <laughs> for the record. Yeah, because the Liquor Commission looked at the final cut of the commercial and said... Looks great, but who is the 12-year-old drinking Miller beer throughout the commercial? <laughs> yeah. Let's do a recut. <laughs> and then I later claimed that I did it, you know, based on my personal integrity. Oh, nice. <laughs> now, we, now, finally, the truth is out. But you weren't 12. 
I, I looked 12, right. but I was underage. It's amazing. J. Walter Thompson made a beer commercial with an underage, you know, performer yeah. and didn't catch it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, like, what was the bad? Are you, are you and your brother okay? We, right now, we're, we're in pretty good shape. Okay. So, when did you guys start? Like, the Del Fuegos came out of where? You weren't The Boston Del Fuegos guys. started at Oberlin College. Oh, really? Yeah. In so Ohio? In Ohio. Yeah, with Dan, Tom, and an original drummer. It's a bit of a spinal tap. The sure. drummer switched out quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. But as you know, Boston was such a robust and one of the greatest music scenes ever. It was crazy then. Yeah. It it's was, been, the whole thing has been erased. It's like the history of it has been erased. Yeah. You had these pockets of regional activity yeah. that were so strong, but so contained unto themselves. But... Being part of that scene in the Del Fuegos, one, one thing we kept from view is the fact that three of the four of us went to Phillips Andover Academy, which was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that not, was where the Bushes went, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kennedy's, yeah, Bushes, yeah. Humphrey sure. Bogart. You went there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we were, you know, scholarship students, you but that doesn't mean we didn't go there. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Wild. But, but it wasn't very rock and roll to say, uh, I went to George Bush's school. Right. But you guys both went there on scholarships? Yeah. Smart yeah. guys. It's yeah. interesting between the two of you, because I interviewed him years ago. Yep. And and I I, I think it, his daughter writes for something out here. Yep. Your Anna. niece. Yep. Yeah, she gets in touch with me occasionally. It's interesting how you guys both evolved in terms of how sort of staying around music or in music sort of changed from the model that you set out to do. Yeah. Well, right. Absolutely. I I mean there's there's good fortune, but there's also desperation. But also intelligence. I mean like you guys okay, so you come out of Oberlin or he he comes back and says you want to play in this thing? Is that what happens? I was I was at boarding school and Could I Could you play already? No. I, I had I hadn't filled out any college applications. Uh, I was listening to Nebraska when I was busted for pot and booze at Andover. Uh, at Andover, you know, oh, I was not. I was not top of the class. I was. I was in the other direction. Yeah. And Dan called, kind of in the nick of time, and said, "Do you want to join the band?" I said yes. Then asked him what instrument I would play, and he said, "Guitar." Uh huh. And, and so he had to show you how. Uh, he got the Rolling Stones now on vinyl, and he gave me that, and he said, study this. And we went to the guitar store, and I got this semi-hollow guild. Yeah. Uh, and Like a John I, Lennon guild? Uh, th- this is like a guild that there must be only one of them. Oh, you don't know <laughs> see them single around anymore? a cutaway. No, nobody played I think things. he played an Epiphone anyways. Who yeah. the hell played those guild electrics? I can't remember. This was... I, I mean, it was cool, but it yeah. wasn't the sexiest guitar. Yeah, yeah. But but then I played my first gig three months later. Get out of here. Yeah. I guess with the Del Fuegos, you kind of just needed three chords. I, 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 yeah. I was not coming in on the ship called Virtuosity. Sure. You know. but, you, but it was a ship called Rock and Roll. It was a ship called Punk Rock. Yeah. But we, uh, our, our kind of inspiration base was 50s rock and roll, which 
you know, at its best, doesn't look a lot different from punk rock to no, me. Well, I mean, sure, the Ramones are sort of some sort of jacked up Beach Boys in a way. Yeah, you know, I mean, that '50s thing was still was there at the core at the beginning of certain punk rock. To me, the Liars were the were the best on the scene, and they were there forever. Uh, yeah, still there, uh, still there. But okay. come coming into the band in that way, yeah. with no, you know background playing guitar hadn't been in any bands yeah. uh it was a hard place to start for two brothers it was never going to be easy for yeah. dan to give me creative space and he didn't and yeah. that was the rift between us so you and lasted two records or three records three records well those were the yeah. three right yeah those were the three i like to think that the the one after i left didn't have the magic it didn't <laughs> the magic was wearing out <laughs> Who the fuck, like, I just, like, for some reason, I didn't know who the Neats were. And they've been around. You know the Neats? Yeah, no, we shared a rehearsal space. I mean, it was such an, an know, insular community. And it's so funny. You wrote this amazing books about Petty and now this this uh, Bruce Springsteen about Nebraska. And I didn't realize that you did the uh, the Dusty Springfield 33 and a third thing. But it's it's funny. There's, like, you stayed in music. I mean, you still record. I listened to the new record. It's great, you know? And I, I listened to... All your solo records, um, but you—I mean—you released one last year. Yeah, you know, I—I th I th then this is going back to that idea that we, you know, my brother and I had different experiences of being just another couple guys without a father. Where was that guy? What happened for, to that guy? Uh, he, you know, I probably met him about ten times in my life. Oh, and, really? Uh, he died a few years back. Uh, my sons met him once. I, I, you know, Dan gave me an address. I brought my two sons and yeah. my sister's youngest. And yeah. he was meeting them for the first and only time. We gave him our address. Never heard from him again. Uh, and then he died a couple of years later. But, where, but when you, you come from yeah. those backgrounds, as we all know, and there's a lot of this in rock and roll, you've got that desire to be validated, that desire to be seen. And it can become... A career, sure. If if you got talent behind it, or enough charm, or or something, or if you, or you some, demand it, some combination yeah. of the two, ideally. Yeah. yeah. If you find a stage where you can, yeah. you know, give it a try. If you can find a stage, don't yeah. get off it. That's right. Well, I think I have some of that. My dad was around, but he was pretty vacant and uh, and a bit uh, emotionally erratic. So wait, where'd you grow up though? Grew up in New Hampshire. Which town? Concord, New Hampshire. Your dad, like, just split? Is that what happened? Uh, yeah. I mean, Dan, being four years older, had an experience of him that that I didn't. When I was born, uh, he was in Texas, and uh, my mother was giving birth in New Hampshire. So it tells you that all was not well. Right. Uh, and then, I, you know, I think I came out into a bit of a shitstorm. You know, but my mother... Made she had a good record collection. Yeah, uh, she encouraged us. You know, there were books of art photography. Yeah. there were good novels. Oh, yeah? So, what did she do? A photographer. Oh yeah. She, so <laughs> it's a great metaphor that tells you something about her. She was often in the dark room. Yeah. So if you wanted to go see her, you knocked on this door and you waited for the moment, and then you stood in the dark with your mother. Wow. You know what? You stayed in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't. Did you get? Because uh, I know Dan and I talked recovery. Did you get involved with that shit? I'm 29 years clean and you sober. Too. Yeah. I, I think I'm 24 this year. Yeah. This is. 
yes. So when you talk about yeah. being able to stay with music and find, you know, different outlets, kind of diversify your portfolio, being clean and sober definitely facilitated. So what that. were you like twenty when you got sober? Uh no, twenty nine. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Twenty nine. I was in graduate school getting my first masters and uh you know, it was this it was the same old cycle. Uh that I was seeing, but I remember going to one of my professors and saying, you know, I'd been at the top of the class and I went to her and said, you know, I'm really sorry about that last exam, but I stopped drinking. And she's looking at me going, shouldn't it get better? (laughs) And I was like, don't talk to anybody who doesn't understand. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Now, not for a few years, it doesn't get better. Yeah. Yeah. The first five are kind of rough. Yeah. So after the Fuegos, you did you go to undergrad? Well, I I went down to New Orleans where people go to bottom out, and oh. um, it's just like, kind of, and you're like twenty in your twenties. Yeah, early twenties. Are you playing music? No, I mean I was really like I was a lost soul, and I was working at uh, I had been a bicycle racer before the Del Fuegos. Really? And yeah, what, pretty not, serious at Andover. Uh, at Andover, but more, you know, in the summer, uh, you know, yeah. you know, like I, I qualified for the nationals and, yeah. uh, you know, really into it. So I had, I knew how to work on bikes. Yeah. So I left the Del Fuegos, kind of chased a girl yeah. down in New Orleans and I yeah. was a bike mechanic. Right. And I remember like if I had a, an epiphany moment, it was, I was working on a bike yeah. and I heard don't back down from full moon fever and, you know. It hadn't been that long before that we were playing at Madison Square Garden with Petty, and here's this totally new Tom Petty, and I got grease all over my hands. Oh, shit. And I'm thinking, I my story can't end here. Was it, was, was it the lyric or just the fact? It was the sound. It was the sound. That, like, that was a Jeff Lynne record, right? Yeah. And, and like you kind of knew that wasn't a Heartbreakers record. But there was talking to Jeff Lynne later, he said there was a lightness. There was a, he, he couldn't get yeah. the words. It was beautiful to me, though. But yeah. there's some sound on that record. Yeah. That people don't mean to achieve. But it, Petty was in the place, Jeff Lynne was in the place, and they worked fast. You know who's like the key to it? Like, I'm no huge Jeff Lynne fan because I, I don't, I, I don't, his production annoys me, but but whatever. You know, obviously he's a genius, and you know he made a lot of hits. But uh, and I just got that album uh, by what became ELO. What was it, the move? Were they called? Yeah. The, oh yeah, yeah. I just got Birmingham that band. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was Jeff Lynne, though, right? Yeah. But like, I, I'm going. I try. I try. But but <laughs> the key, even on that record, it's fucking Benmont, man. A lot of the time, isn't it? Jimmy Iovine would say about Heartbreakers records. If you're running into problems in a mix, turn Benmon up and the problems may go away. <laughs> yeah, I, man. I think that was brilliant. But I feel like Jeff Lynn, yes, there's a kind of trademark production sure. sound in sure. that period. Yeah. But what that allowed was look at the lyrics for Free Fall. I know. Like, that thing's killer. He's yeah. he's able to like go out into this space that's so kind of unexpected yeah nobody was writing lyrics like that yeah and i think jeff lynn's the rigidity of his musical framework right gave petty this different kind of freedom yeah i can see i can hear that i, yeah. I think the one i listen to the most is still like the first record oddly yeah it's great well this is where uh you know i i really see in 
Bruce Springsteen a lot that I that I saw in Petty, yeah. which is these guys go after their records and their songwriting with a kind of rigor that just keeps the quality up at this really high level. But I'd say they're obsessive creatives and for you know there are reasons behind it all but it just makes their records they were the ones that i kept going back to sure man and like and also to get back to your story in a second but like as as it all turns out i think they were both the sons of you know either alcoholic fathers or abusive fathers right look i'll one of the the miracles in my life because i didn't go after that but that I've gotten to spend time with a Tom Petty and a Bruce Springsteen, yeah. guys who didn't have the same thing I didn't have. And I get to see them having experiences in art and in life that they found this a way, but they also transmit something in the music that for me, like th these people can never be your father, but right. they can give you some kind of nourishment that you didn't get back right then. because uh, they're wrangling with the same emotional space it, there's some kind of identification this yeah. is where nebraska is such a uh, has been such a long mystery for me is like he's not telling the story in an explicit way of where he came from but it's all in there yeah. it's it's so deeply encoded and i swear before i knew what was going on i was hearing nebraska and finding that I was among those lost people. And I kept coming back and going, why do I feel at home with all these desperate people, with these losers? Like, what is it? Yeah. And, you know, this is where writing books, long, let's just say long-form projects, yeah. uh, something's going to happen in there. And I feel like Nebraska it's, did some healing for me. And also writing when you write, there's a discovery as you do it. There's, and, it if, it's, if it's not happening at two levels, like you say, there's this some kind of self-discovery, yeah. and it's not in the pages. Yeah, because like the book, and we're going to come back around to it, you know, it's compelling. I mean, the way you put together the, the, the sort of history and, and the, the breakdown, and the, once you contextualize... Nebraska on all levels, you know, as, as a record, as, as songs, as, you know, you get to have these very candid conversations with Bruce about the process and with Landau about the process and with other people who, you know, how they responded to the record. And then, you know, the time, the story, the putting it into the context of time where he was at, where we were at as a culture, you know, what people were expecting out of him, out of the world. It, but, but it reads like a, it's a page turner because like, you're like, well, how are they going to get it on the vinyl? <laughs> I, well, I, one of one of the nicest things that John Landau said, it was, and I'm going to paraphrase here, uh, he went to Bruce and said, Bruce, this guy made mastering seem exciting. <laughs> I was like, that feels good to a writer. But you know what? It yeah. was exciting because well, they didn't know if this thing would work in the world. It was still a question. All that stuff, like, it's a great piece of cultural criticism on top of music, music history, and and I guess it would fall into the world of music criticism in a broader sense, in the cultural sense. I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not trying to, well, I, 
I don't know if what you would call it. Um, what did you call it? You know, I mean, l- let me let me say this: that yeah. I feel like it's it and the Petty biography. I would yeah. say are children of my experience writing the thirty-three and a third book, the Dusty and, Springfield book. Yeah, and I had a doctoral dissertation floating around in my brain, and that series gave me the opportunity to remix it. As this short book, so was and that? I, I knew no limits there. Right? Was and that your doctorate? It's if if you if you read them back to back, you'd say they have nothing to do with one another. But a lot of the ideas I moved over, and I had this experience because Jerry Wexler was a key figure. Jerry, of course, I played him in the Respect movie. Oh, yeah, there I know we, about Wexler. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I mean, a legend. Yeah. And I got to have this experience of talking to Jerry almost every day. About? Whatever. He wanted me to become a fan of jazz. He sent me— So is this your doctorate? (laughs) This is post-doctoral work, and I'm just researching Dusty in Memphis. But I wrote this strange little book that I I really worried. And then it was all done, and it came out, and I remember getting home— and on my phone, my voicemail, yeah. there was a message from Jerry. Hello, Warren. He's Warren, <laughs> finally, someone got it right. Uh, and I went, I thought he was going to be pissed. Yeah. And Did I'm he produce like, that record? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he worked so closely with Dusty. But this is the long way of saying that told me, like, go after the freedom, like, right from Every different angle. You don't have to sound like a historian. You don't have to sound like a critic. You can weave in first person. Well, I think like, that's what a good cultural critic does. I think they have a point of view. You know, that is personal. Yeah. It's hard to get in there, though, because a lot of people will feel that the first person point of view is an intrusion. If yeah, they're accustomed. Fuck them. Fuck them. I, used to, I used to get that like when I'd interrupt people. They're like, you yeah, know, you're interviewing them. I'm like, I'm talking to them. Shut up. So, <laughs> but going back, so you're, you're covered in Greece listening to Free uh, free Falling or or Don't Back Down in in New Orleans yeah. at age, what, 20? 20, 22, 23. And, and you had opened for Petty with the Fuegos? We did, we did a three-month tour with them, a three-month tour with so NXS. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I met him when I was a teenager. Huh. Yeah. And so what happens? Is It's clearly not your white light experience because it sounds like you didn't get sober for another seven years. But No, no, I, I did. I get, I got sober pretty – well, no, I got sober – yeah, you're right. Your math's better than mine. <laughs> Maybe like four years. Okay. But I, but I, I went back to school. Uh, not back to school. I'd never been to school. To college. You yeah. went to undergrad. Yeah. So I'm living in New Orleans, and uh, my, my girlfriend says – she thinks this relationship is not really going anywhere, and I'm wondering why. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. She said, "You got all your eggs in one basket," meaning music. And so she encouraged me to look into college, and I found a map. I found the closest yeah. college. It was Loyola University. I went to the admissions office, and I said, "I went to Phillips Andover Academy." <laughs> and I somehow <laughs> skipped the application process, and they said yes. They just yeah. let me in. And what about money, paying for it? My uh, mother's third husband. Yeah. So between my parents, you've got either eight or nine marriages. <laughs> yeah. uh, husband number three yeah. put me through college. And wow. then in grad school, they start 
you know, giving you a stipend. And but he he launched me there, and I was doing creative writing mm. and art history, a double major. Wow! And, and pretty soon, I just started. You know, the and he finished. I got a, I got a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD. But I mean, so you got the uh, a bachelor's in art history and English, yeah, and creative writing and art history, because that's like art history is a pretty good foundation, you know, for what certainly how you know you write. If it's it is it is and has always been a visual culture. Sure. So then, okay. So what's the first? What's the first masters? First Masters is, it's in an art history program, but I was starting to get into critical theory. So it was Derrida and Foucault. You can wrap your brain around that shit? uh, I really went into the cave with this stuff. Like, I wasn't going out to eat. I wasn't going to movies except at the Dollar Theater. And I just, it was immersive. What was that thesis about? Uh the first masters was about the artist Richard Prince. Uh-huh. Uh the the second one merged with the PhD and I was looking at the idea of region as a kind of symbolic quantity and I'm I'm somebody who's always been fascinated with the south. Uh-huh. You know, this is where the music comes from right. really. Okay. You know when you think about the band up in Canada, they're having dreams of the American south up there. Sure. That's how that music yeah. comes into being. Well they also they're having dreams but they have the records. The records, and then Levon Helm is coming from Arkansas, and like they put it together, but they know the the hearts beating a little louder down there. Regions are sub- symbolic quantities. Is that what you yeah, said? Or symbolic, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, I feel like there's a fantasy of the American South. Yeah, that has a basis in reality, but it interested me. Yeah. And so I was in a department where I could go. It was pretty free range intellectual this? work. Uh, University of Rochester. Both of them. Uh, I went it went Loyola to University of Wisconsin, Madison to University of Rochester. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then so now you got two masters, one PhD. You're a doctor of what? Well, I something happened before I finished the dissertation, which was that I got a solo record deal with the Dust Brothers, who had produced Beck's Odelay, yeah. yeah. Beastie Boys. It's Paul's interesting. Boutique. I listened to that record. I listened to record. And then I listened to the newer one. You know, it's 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 weird there what they brought to it, to that earlier stuff. They're like, you know, like we can we can get the groove yeah. that is kind of happening now for this guy because he's writing good songs, and we can you know kind of do our thing. Yeah, yeah. Because the new record is a little more raw. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's yeah. it's as much as I can pay for. Right. <laughs> sure. But. Uh, I, I was the Dust Brothers label yeah. was a Disney subsidiary. Okay, and um, they one day Michael Eisner shut down half his labels, and mine was one of them. And Fuck. so there I am. You know, it. I look at it as um, either the gods or my mother yeah. uh, at work, and it made me go and finish the dissertation. And I am so glad. You know, it felt yeah, like a bad moment, but man, could have ended up back in New Orleans. It, the PhD mattered. It just mattered. You know, we forgot to finish out. Let's go back real quick and talk about the Miller beer controversy because we didn't, we kind of described it, but we never, because what happened in my memory was everyone in Boston thought you guys were some sort of sellouts. Yeah, which is exactly right. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they kind of turned on the Del Fuegos. 
And you guys had to kind of take that hit. I, I would say we were already out the backyard. Yeah. So we didn't feel it. Oh, you're already making big records. Well, we were already out there. We crossed some line, like we were right. Sure, we were gonna go for it, and you're and you're opening for Petty too. Yeah, you're doing shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You transcended the small pond. Yeah, yeah. but in retrospect, if if you could do one thing differently, that would be it. Not do the commercial. Yeah. All right. Well, now we got closure on that story. So here you are, (laughs) doctored up, and do you have a plan? Are you gonna teach? Yeah, the plan was to teach. Uh, That. I was at a moment. Uh, I was I was interviewing with the University of Georgia to yeah. come into their art history program. Yeah. Uh, but someone at the New York Times did an article about me and Dan, and um, someone at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame saw that article, and I got tapped for a vice president position there, which is. For someone who's doing adjunct teaching and, you know, living off his then wife's uh, money on some level. Yeah. Uh, wow, a vice president. That sounds impressive, right? But what, so what was the, why'd they pick you? Um, th- having been in a band, some, yeah. some, you know, experience on the ground. Sure. PhD. Yeah. Uh, still doing, I was starting to write more about music. Yeah. Uh, that Dusty in Memphis book came and yeah. I just, I looked like a kind of perfect fit from some Who was the president? Uh, Terry Stewart was the, was the CEO at that time. Now, what was your job? Uh, I was the vice president of education and programs. So I did a lot of, for instance, uh, I was... It gave me a kind of visiting professor position at Case Western Reserve. Uh, so I could be at the, the museum yeah. and also go up there and teach. Where's it was, that? It was ideal. That's Cleveland. Case is in—well, I knew the Rock Hall of Fame's there, but yeah. Case is in Cleveland. Yep. So you're teaching what? Uh, I was teaching a class. It was really uh, an interdisciplinary sure. cultural studies kind of thing where okay. I could I could bring in literature, I could bring in the visual arts, I sure. could bring in music, sure. and and steer my own ship. So you could you could teach uh, the courses on what Warren thinks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, look, I'm, I'm I don't need to convince you. Yeah, more people should be looking at popular music in the classroom. Of course, if you if you walk the streets today. What are young people using? What cultural product are they using to kind of build a sense for themselves? Yeah. Typically music, more than anything else. Yet, it doesn't get into the classroom. They've got a better shot studying Hemingway than Taylor Swift. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. Well, yeah, especially because, like, you know, when you really think about it, and when I was coming up or growing up, when you really think about the the sort of, you know, uh, ground zero of rock and roll. I mean, it's it's not that far back. Yeah. And and from there and from, you know, well, obviously, you know, from jazz and from blues and from country, like all, all that stuff that, you know, what is America kind of moves through the music. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if, if you want to talk about the Great Migration, for instance, mm. make it a musical story. Why not? If you want to talk about the the role of the black church sure. and how it matters beyond the black community, yep. do it through music. They're all, you know, it's just, there's a density to it. Interesting. But I think it's the, it's the, that there are people looking and it's the Taylor Swifts that make it hard. Like, really? We should look at that? It's like, 
if you take the other stuff seriously, take the current stuff seriously too. Like, well, yeah, you got to go back, you know. But but the weird thing about going back is the one problem with that idea is that I have found that generations younger than you. And maybe us as well, but it was a little different because I think we're closer to the source point. But I think younger generations, even if you show them, you know, a Dolly Parton or even if you trace, you know, uh, Taylor Swift back through her roots, is that they want to feel like they discovered something new. So Mm. you're sort of up against that until they hit an age where their curiosity enables them to contextualize. Yeah, I I agree with that. One of the good things is whoever's out there and, you know, in the top 20 yeah. with longer careers, yeah. they're going to be pretty quick to share what their roots are. And so once it, like a young fan hears that Dolly Parton mattered sure. from their favorite artist, yeah. they'll start to naturally go back. Yeah, a little um, bit. Yeah. But like to, to really kind of run the train back. To sort of look at America, you know, that's you know, yeah, that's a big ask. Yeah, of I, a seventeen-year-old. Yeah, I, I trust me, I try with my sons, and I'm, I'm being a little bit <laughs> overly optimistic. Well, then, yeah, coming from dad, then it's like going to be a bigger problem because they got to learn this shit on their own. Either they're going to be curious, or they aren't. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I stopped. You know, I say that I do that with my sons. I actually stopped. I started listening to their music much sure. more because they were, I had a lot to learn, and in particular, musical theater, which I'd always viewed as a world never to go toward. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then the Hamilton generation came along. Yeah. And I see things, I see my kids processing emotions through musicals, and yeah. I'm like, that's as good as it gets. So I, yeah. I listen to a lot of Dear Evan Hansen. A lot of Hamilton, yeah, uh, and I kind of fell in love with musical theater. Yeah, I've the always had a, a weird soft spot for it. I don't know a lot about it, but it always gets me for no reason. If I just see more than one person, if I go, if I'm in a theater and there's a set and people come out and they take their places and they start singing together, um, I'm a mess. I just it just moves me. Something, I have no idea why. I'm 100% with you. There's something about a group vocal. Totally. I mean, there's a reason that happens in churches, yeah. but there's a reason that the Beatles became the Beatles that has to do with many things, but harmony absolutely among yeah. them. Okay, so now you're at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that, that gives you some some sort of cultural bona fides, right? Uh, I'm being totally forthcoming, it, it was an anxious move for me. Uh, because I was still making records. I could have made the choice to live with less yeah. and uh, keep going after a music yeah. career. Yeah. But I had, you know, one one of my sons, Lucian, was already born. Another was coming. Yeah. And I wanted, I wanted something more solid for them. Okay. Uh, but I felt like if the if the Miller commercial felt like a kind of sellout, I thought, <laughs> yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah. how am I going to live this down? Yeah. And it ended up being a fantastic experience yeah. for me. Yeah. And, and nobody cared, right? Nobody cared. I mean, you, it's like you weren't – in order to get that type of specific attention, you got to have some sort of big profile so people can be mad about it. Yeah. People yeah. are mad about inductions, and this job had nothing to do with the inductions, really. Yeah. And so I had people They'll like get around to everybody. Chips Moman and <laughs> yeah. Dan Penn, uh-huh. you know, uh, 
It's just the, the guests, Bootsy Collins, yeah. you know, the James yeah. Brown's drummers, sure. uh, this this steady flow of artists, and then putting on a Sam Cooke tribute yeah. with Aretha Franklin as my headliner. I got to do, I was just writing about Harry Belafonte yeah. and bringing him out for a Lead Belly tribute, and I look back and I go, wow, they really gave me a platform to do some amazing things. So you were producing things. shows? Yeah, we would put on a, a yearly American Music Masters okay. show. Yeah. Uh, but throughout the calendar year, smaller yeah. ones, bigger ones. You know, Chips Moman, ma- yeah. major figure. Yeah. Probably 10 people in the audience. But for me, it didn't matter. I was having these conversations. I learned so much. Oh, so you were interviewing them. Yeah. How did Chips feel about 10 people in the audience? You know what? Chips was, I think he was really just happy to be there and happy that people were seeing where he fit historically. And I would say, like, do not look out there at the numbers. Know that we're taping this, and this goes into the archives. So you were working as a cultural anthropologist. That's how I felt. But was that part of the job thing, or is that something you carved out for yourself? Did you take it as an opportunity, the cachet, to, uh, to, to bring these people in? And and to 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 sort of learn more for yourself, but also to sort of integrate them into the into yeah. the history. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I invented the model, but I would say there was lots of room for me to kind of refine the model. Uh-huh. And I got to you know let my interest in music drive me. Yeah. And so you know, for instance, you know, calling up Jerry Wexler and say, "Hey, Jerry, if you could have one person come yeah. in for a public event, yeah. he's like Cowboy Jack Clement." And then I go call Cowboy Jack Clement, and he came into the museum. Like, I got to do that stuff. And these people are heroes. Yeah. Okay, so there you are. And now you are a guy that does that. So is that how you got the gig? With When does the Dusty thing uh, happen, and when does the Scorsese thing happen? I wasn't at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for for a very long time. And and then what happens in my life is I've got these – aspects of my work that are running simultaneously. So I keep making records. I keep writing. I keep teaching. I keep working to get more music in the classroom. And in a way, that's that's carried on. Documentary work snuck in the side door. Uh, When I did that Lead Belly program that I mentioned, uh, Don Fleming, who ran the Alan Lomax archives. Great archive. Uh, yeah, yeah. His his wife was working for Scorsese, and huh. th- that's how I came in to do interviews for that project, which was incredible for me to talk George Harrison with George Harrison's friends, you know. So that was the George Harrison doc. Yeah. 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 And were you on ca- You weren't on camera, or were you just nope. doing background? Yeah, the the guy that gets cut out. Yeah, uh, but but in my first interview, but you were that doing was taped interviews. Terry Gilliam. Yeah, you were doing taped interviews. Yeah. So you okay? So you were the they were phrasing it as a question. And yeah, it's giving like the answer. Yeah, you yeah. know, Jack, Jackie Stewart, the, yeah. the race car driver, yeah. Terry Gilliam, yeah, Klaus Vorman. Yeah, it was uh, great. I like that documentary. So you do the Scorsese doc on George, and then how does the that petty book come because that petty book was huge and i think helped put him into context it was a popular book uh well by i mean here, here's here's what happened is is tom got the dusty in memphis book yeah and uh 
His management reached out and said, Tom would, has read this book and I'd like to take you out yeah. to dinner next time you're in L.A. And yeah. I hadn't seen him in a long time. Since I was you were an a kid? Acad- yeah, I was an academic. And I was like, wow. So uh, I went out to a restaurant right across from his Did house. He, rem- he knew you from when you were a kid, though. Like when oh, he, yeah. When he read oh, the book, he was oh. like, yeah, it's that kid from the He was Del really, Fuegans. you know what? He was always, like, really nice to me. Yeah. It, and I couldn't. I felt undeserving, ah. but he read this book. We have this dinner, just the two of us looking over the Pacific. Yeah. And uh, he said, so I read this book and I can't usually trace inspiration, but I wrote a song because of it. And I want you to come back to the house and hear it. And <laughs> now I'm like, I had no idea this is where the dinner was going. Yeah, yeah. And from that day forward, I was just kind of in his world again. What song? And, uh down south from the Highway Companion. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and he like went on to and Terry Gross and talked. There's this guy, Warren Zanes, he wrote this book. And I was just like, what? Yeah. I was an academic. Yeah. You know, that's how I thought of myself. Really? And, yeah. And then they called for, about the Peter Bogdanovich not long after and said, Tom wants you to be one of the interviews. Yeah. He just, uh, you know, it's it it moves me. Yeah. Um, he could have uh, picked other people. Sure. And, uh, you know, he, he and Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen, like when, when everybody left the house, you know, we're living in New Hampshire, 20 acres. When everybody leaves the house, you go to that turntable and you put these records on. You put on Born to Run. You put on Damn the Torpedoes. And you sing until you feel just a little more freedom than you can feel when other people are in the house. Yeah. You know, and then, yeah. then your mother comes back with right. a gallon of milk from the neighbor's yeah. house. And you try to make it look like you weren't just pouring out your soul. Yeah. But those records come into your body, yeah. into your life, yeah. and they do something, and it stays there. Yeah. Yeah, and and music does that. It's like it's, it's it. I when people talk about comedy and music, like I I always say that you know music is genuinely magic. You know, and comedy sort of a trick, where music, it kind of grows with you. That's the weirdest thing about you, about it is once you get it in your bones, especially that older stuff for whatever reason, the stuff that kind of defines your. Uh, childhood or adolescence or whatever, it stays in you. But as you get older, like, I swear to God, I mean, I was, what was I listening to today? I was listening to Fear of Music, you know, at the gym. And I swear, I'm like, I never noticed that guitar part. Like, the, like, or I never noticed that lyric. Or, like, it keeps growing. It keeps speaking to you. The, the, I really tried to end the Nebraska book on that very note, just saying... You know, movies, maybe you'll see them a half dozen times. Sure. You know, novels, you, you might read them three times. Music, a recording. Yeah. Thousands. Oh, totally. Like, if you just look at what you, what the most played are, are on your, on your phone, like, look at what you play the most, you know, because there's a list of songs that you go back to when you, and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, what you end up listening to over and over again. Well, the past couple of years for me, it's Nebraska. Nebraska. Well, I had to go back to Nebraska because I read the book. And, but like, before we talk about that, just quickly, what was your, what did you do for the, you know, 20 Feet from Stardom movie? Because I love that documentary. Uh, and it got me into her. 
Uh, the one Mary Clayton. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. got her so I was I got a bunch of vinyl. Well, Darlene Love. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, it was yeah. incredible being involved in a project that centered around women. Mm. Like popular music is no utopia, and in gender, it's definitely not. Uh, and rock and roll, you know, very skewed male. So that project had had that. Yeah. These women's voices. But the way it came to me is uh, Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone sent me an email saying, would you talk to my friend Gil about his documentary idea? And I'm like, you know, of course. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know Gil. Gil described himself as the ampersand in A&M. There's Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. Yeah. And Gil's running A&M for years. Yeah. And so Gil calls me and... I was just getting divorced, and my youngest, yeah, I will never forget this day, my youngest wanted a mother and father to walk him to class, and it just, it wasn't going to happen. And I was so kind of devastated, like, we can't do that for this kid. Yeah. And Gil calls me that day, and he goes, hey, it's Gil Friesen, how are you doing? I said, Gil? I was in that, like, I got nothing to lose here. And I said, let me tell you how I'm doing. And I just did this whole spiel. Yeah. And at the end of the spiel, he says, would you like to know how I'm doing? And I said, I probably owe you that. And he said, well, today was also my son's first day of kindergarten. And I'm, I can't remember how old it was. I'm 64. And I'm telling you that, Warren, to let you know there will be other chapters. Yeah. <laughs> now, from that moment, like, Gil Friesen, I loved this guy. Like, he didn't tell me, like, behave. He said, I feel that you're hurting. And here's a little story that might make you consider that it's not all over yet. Man. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, what's your idea? <laughs> and yeah. he said that he had gone to see Leonard Cohen. Yeah. And he'd smoked pot before he saw the show. Yeah. And he was just kind of spacing out, looking at the background singers, yeah. wondering what their lives were like. Yeah. And that was it. He really didn't have an idea. Right. And that tells you something about the birth of some of the best ideas. Yeah. They just creep in quietly. Yeah. And then situate themselves. and. Then, you know, eventually he named Morgan Neville director, and he was just persistent in making sure it was the best possible movie, and, and Morgan was there to respond. And who, who came up with that title? Jimmy Buffett. Huh. Gil was describing it to Jimmy Buffett and some other people, and Jimmy Buffett just said, that's like 20 feet from stardom. Mm. And Gil looked at him and went, <laughs> gotcha <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that that movie did very well and it brought a lot of attention to those those uh women and it, i i became sort of fascinated with clayton's story yeah and i got those solo records because she had a bit of a solo career there's like she, two or three solo records I think, she came and, and sang on the third del fuego's record no shit and we all we brought flowers yeah and we all wore suits that oh, yeah. day in the oh, studio because yeah. Oh, yeah. we knew who was coming. Yeah, that's beautiful. So why the Bruce book? How did that happen? Um, because I had a question about this thing, and I was kind of describing it earlier, like, 
why am I feeling so much of myself in this? Yep. Uh, that was one question. The other question was like, why in God's name would any artist do that at that point in their career? So The River was his first number one album yeah. with his first top 10 single, Hungry yeah. Heart. After what, six records, five records? That's f- The River's the fifth. Okay. He's poised. You know, they just cracked Europe touring, their biggest tour yet. It's just the moment when you step onto the rocket launch pad and you take that trip. Yeah. And he went in a completely different direction. And that fascinated me. Like in the book, I say, you know, it was more punk rock than any punk rock band. Yeah. It was so defiant. It was so in opposition to what was expected from the marketplace perspective. And that fascinated me. So those two things, why am I connecting with this like I am? And why did that man do it? And then when I read his memoir, uh, Born to Run, and he talks about his breakdown right after Nebraska, I went, of course, if it's going to come, that's when it's coming. And I want to know more. And... So you saw that because I interviewed him and, you know, being in the presence of him is is something. It's it's very powerful. And I think what he did in his memoir, talking candidly mm-hmm. uh, with that kind of vulnerability yeah. was a really, it meant a lot to a lot of people. It totally. meant a lot to me. Yeah. And uh, the thing that, it, the, it was my inroad. It was it was my inroad to a book, but I still didn't know what the book well, was how, about. How'd you get him to sign on? Because you got a lot of very focused conversations out of him about this. Yeah, because yeah, I, yeah, I guess you had some ideas. You saw that that period as as a as a portal, like you, you saw it as a gap that you realized that there was something about you know the mental breakdown and, and previous to that. Just to, and also you go you, you out of your way to really you know talk about you know who would do this, why would they do it in between Born in the USA and The River. You know, like he, he sort of stalled that launch that you talked about. And, you know, and it becomes sort of clear that he didn't really know either. I, I don't, it didn't seem like in the book that he was clear on his intentions. Yeah, yeah I, one part of me wondered because of the way it panned out was, yeah. gosh, was there calculation here? Yeah, yeah. Because what a perfect setup for Born in the USA. And there was no calculation. There was, he was somebody lost. bottoming out. Yeah. And like, the, the you know, there's no hope on Nebraska, but in the story of getting from Nebraska to born in the USA, yeah. there's a lot of hope. And the, the idea of someone making art from a place that dark, most people stop and they get the art going again when they've come out of it. He made something from the heart of it. And I think that's what I was feeling like. It's it's like so it's very curious that it I carried it as a kind of emblem of hope and you know I've been what I've, the way it felt in the middle of things so like uh, the, the move the the from from Nebraska to born in the USA that was sort of redemptive and and optimistic somehow y- yes yeah. N- not at the level of story not at the level of sound but in retrospect the shape of that life like something happened that allowed him to carry on. You know, this was the feeling 
I had, like when we went back to the room where he made Nebraska, and it was just the two of us walking into that, that house. Room. It was in a, in a it, house. Yeah, it was a, a rental, a ranch house, small place. And uh, like you, you know, you go, you know, pretty thoroughly in the book, you kind of, you, you kind of set up, you know, who he was at that time, what he'd just gone through, you know, that, you know, the idea of working with the band, not working with the band, that the river was a sort of like band record, much of it done live in the room. And, uh, you know, these were his guys. They'd always been his guys. And, you know, he had these other records, you know, I mean, darkness is no slouch of a record, you you know, and it, and then, Something happens to him after the river where, you know, he he sort of drops into this dark zone. Which many of us do. Of course. You know, and so he rents and, this house in New Jersey. He's you know, it's not his house, right? He's he has another house there, right? He rented well, it. No, no. Oh, he, he, was, he buys his first house after he makes Nebraska, but it's in Los Angeles. Right. Because so, like after even after Born in the USA, he kinda hit wasn't great. Yeah, but but, yeah, but, but this is, uh, you know, he comes off the road. One of my favorite quotes is, you know, Max Weinberg saying, you know, you know, there were some of us who didn't know where he was living. Like, yeah. it's such a band experience yeah. going out on the road. He comes off the tour, and then that band, he's a little bit, you know, he's missing. Yeah. And he's obviously missing to himself, but he's always found or looked for where he is through song. So he keeps writing. And, you know, he's spent so much money in recording studios that he's got to find another way. He's come into his early 30s, and then he gets that four-track recorder. Well, that was very interesting in what you were talking about in terms of how do you make mastering compelling is that, you know, you were, you know there's definitely many levels in the book that address the culture and also, you know, just how... Technology is progressing around music and what, you know, production, how that's, you know, kind of evolving in music. And you, you spend a lot of time talking about those home four tracks because I've used those. I had friends who had those. And that was when they came out. Yeah. Was around this time because he wanted to get these things down. He didn't. I, I think he assumed they were demos. He did. Yeah. yeah. This is, it's the only album of his, only official release that yeah. he made not knowing he was making an official release. Yeah. So he's putting these songs down and he needed something to do that with. And he needed to, to have like uh, someone to teach him how to use that machine. And, you know, but, but also he's coming, the, the thing that I really liked about, you know, setting these songs up was that I had known that he you know, was really taken with the band Suicide. I mean, I knew that. And that, you know, and I, you know, I have that, that first Suicide record is really something. And, and clearly the darkness there through, what's his name? Alan Vega? Was it Alan Al Vega? Vega yeah. That whatever that guy was exploring in that minimalist way, which was, you know, a, a sort of no wave band, uh, uh, you know, which a two man operation. But the darkness that that guy, like I listened to it because I was reading the book. And it was what was interesting is that on which one is it? Where's which suicide song is the one about Johnny? Frankie Teardrop. Frankie Teardrop is that like somehow or another I had a moment with it that I hadn't had before, which was that it's it's sort of like um, it's a, a the end by the Doors. Hmm. You know the end of that song where he's like, Ma, and then he walked on down the hall. There's something that dark. 
about that song too, that there was sort of this this narrative about death and and about horror and about evil. So I think I think this is why in the books suicide the yeah. band is yeah. so so important and and Springsteen puts it beautifully saying you know there's an unforgivingness in this music that yeah. appealed to him but he was also going isn't you know aren't there territories that music can go to that I haven't yet explored well, yeah that there aren't that many bands, you know, romance and l- love and loss. These yeah. are so central to yeah. popular music. Yeah. But violence, terror, despair, yeah. which many of us feel at junctures in our lives, we don't see them in music that much. He found them in suicide, right? But he also, like, as an homage or or unconsciously, basically does an uh, an, an Alan Vega Yelp. In, yeah, and State Trooper. It's, yeah, it's right there. Yeah, it's and, and I and I love that too. That he's like, I'm gonna sign your name right here. Yeah, it's yeah. It's a scream. Yeah, and it's like it it is that scream, but also you know the reference to I had to go dig up you know you know Hank Mizell, you know that jungle rock business yeah. because I knew. The sound of Nebraska. You kind of know that sound if you listen to old rockabilly or, or you listen to the darker rockabilly stuff. Yeah. But but that, you know, but it, that that stuff after you talk to him was kind of running through his brain, that that was a context. That was a sound that had haunted him when he was a kid somehow yeah. or it spoke or it enabled him the delivery system to do what he wanted to do with that record. You know, cuz that reverb business and that echo business, you know, it is haunting. Yeah. And and it's 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 haunting all the way back to the beginning of people using that on their voice in rock and roll. It, and it is something there's something creepy about some of the rockabilly stuff. Always has been. Yeah, but then he combines that yep. so that echoplex, yep. that kind of Sun Records reverb. And the analog well, echoplex he had? Uh it's, it had, I think it, it was like the, the Gibson yeah, echo yeah, plex yeah, yeah. that he used. Uh, but it combines it with like the glockenspiel. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, to yeah. get the sound of childhood. Yeah. There are these things you would never put together that he was so intuitively and, and like talking about him mixing it down to a, a broken boom box. Yeah. He's like, put the elements in front of me. And I can come up with a good way of going about it. Like he, he just went with intuition. But I think it was super important that he didn't think he was making a record. And so there were there were lots of voices out of the room so that he could really attend to the voices that were in the room. Yeah, and it's just crazy because I remember when the record came out, and I, you know, I wasn't in the same place you were. I didn't have an intellectual uh, sort of understanding of it i get what when did it come out 82 82 yeah so like i was just i mean i was home from college for summer i I don't know what i remember getting it i remember having it and thinking like what the fuck is this because i had the river you know and i was like you know my god i mean you know because everyone was sort of talking about it but i was too young to really have you know put it into context or or think about it in any sort of intellectual way but i knew it was a special record and i liked hearing it and i felt haunted by it like i felt uh listening to Older stuff. Yeah. Well, d- well, don't give me too much credit. I, like my understanding of it wasn't intellectual at that time. It was really visceral. Visceral, yeah, yeah. And, and, but the, this thing, like we were talking yeah. about, the, the best music keeps revealing layers. This one just didn't go away from me. And I knew I wasn't alone, that it was a reference point. Yeah, and then because you talk to people, you know, other artists, 
about how it impacted them when it came out? Because this is a time, you know, when, you know, punk rock is going a little bit mainstream and people are starting to use that as a definer of a genre. And then there were those who were sensitive to Bruce and sensitive to, you know, songwriting in general. I can't remember who were the people you talked to. Richard Thompson, Roseanne Cash, Matt Berninger from The National, National. who was great. Yeah, and Uh, Steve Earle. That that had impact. Well, Steve Earle, you you probably got three hours from him. Oh, well, he just, (laughs) I just did a show the other night and he was one of my performers. Okay. Uh, and uh, he did State Trooper in, in Nebraska. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, everybody was like, oh my god, had their reason yeah. that they needed a Nebraska. Well, that and, and then like you know, in once he got done with the with the recordings, you know, he sends them to his manager. He sends them to Landau and says, I don't know what this is, but you know, what do you think? And and, and what Landau said. They, these recordings concerned me on a friendship level. Like, is he okay? He, like, that that partnership. Yeah. The Springsteen-Landau partnership is definitely one of the, the main kind of elements in this book. But that he could get out of the head of, like, the manager who's looking at what the next release might right. be to go to... It concerned me at a friendship level. Like these are darker than the darkness he usually plays in. Uh, that's deep stuff to me. And then that the John Landau reappears, saying, "You need some professional help." Like those guys were able to do something where they knew when it was about human beings who might need some help, yeah. and when it was about making the next record. Yeah, and. And there was a sensitivity. Chuck Plotkin talks about this, that John was the one with the greatest sensitivity. And, like, that for this particular artist is exactly what a manager needed to be. Yeah, because so, he could have slipped away. He could have slipped away uh, after Nebraska, after Born in the USA, where he seemed to become lost Yeah, yeah. for that Tunnel of Love record. I mean, where was that guy? I mean, I saw footage... Of him, you know, playing with the Wallflowers, and he he genuinely looked lost to me. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, you know, we don't have a a neat resolution. We're on these these long, you know, these long. It's an overused word, but they are journeys. And, of course, you know, pe- yeah. peaks and valleys. So he wasn't. This wasn't the last valley, but it was the valley that got him to the next one. And I I feel like. To me, he's a really positive figure in that not just allowing a kind of vulnerability, but he continues to question. It, it, it was really interesting interviewing him when he still had a question. Yeah. He didn't try to sew it all up. Right. He was totally willing to sit there with me and go, that one's open-ended for me. I don't yeah. have an answer. Yeah. Like, that's that's a good interview. Sure. But the as I was saying before, the technology th- uh, thread where you have this machine that, you know, when you're using it at home, you think you're making a professional recording. It's a four-track recorder. But none of the guys within the industry at that time could figure out, once it was decided, like, well, this is it. The band, he brings on to them the band, you know, for what became 
you know, recording several songs for Born in the USA, which they ultimately put on hold for over a year, right? Yeah. Uh, but they tried to play some of the Nebraska songs, and it just wasn't, it wasn't it. In, in his words, and this was absolutely key to understanding the story, he yeah. said, every time we went into the studio to try to make those, what we thought were demos, yeah. better, I lost my characters. Meaning yeah. that the people in those songs sure. who were at that moment in sure. time, his people, yeah. started to disappear. Yeah, they weren't when a band sure. overpowered. Sure, them. they weren't sax characters. They weren't. They weren't uh, steady Max characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you listen. I was just listening to Adam raise the cane yeah. on my way here, and he's he's pushing his voice so hard to go over that band. Yeah. The Nebraska material, they were, you know, that's why Flannery O'Connor is important. These are short stories. Sure. He couldn't fight to get those characters over the top of the music. They could only, like, kind of come under. Yeah, and I meant, feel like that voice, whatever he learned there, you know, once he got a handle on it and took it out of the darkness, enables him to do the Jode record. I, I, think, I think everything that comes after. Sure. You know, I just feel like... Something crucial in terms of his artistic trajectory, not just his yeah. kind of human trajectory, but he he gets you know talking to artists like a Richard Thompson or a Roseanne Cash or a Chuck Prophet about Bruce, yeah. the storyteller yeah. from Nebraska forward, sure. is really telling. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's where he he learned how to 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 create unromantic characters. That weren't redeemed. Yeah. Because, you know, there was sort of a glory to everything before that, even in, you know, even in the sad ones, you know, there was still something sweet about it or something. There was always a sliver of redemption. Yeah. And sometimes I think that there, there's art that, like, can leave that part to the listener, to the reader, to yeah. the viewer, um, and, you know, just not... You know, like Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, yeah. I always felt like there's a little light at the end, and I almost wish it wasn't there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'll provide that. I'm yeah. reading because I'm hopeful. Yeah. If I had no hope, I wouldn't be reading. You know? But if you had no hope, you could listen to Nebraska, and it might it might make you feel less alone. It, that's what it's done for me. Yeah. But the the sort of technological thing where they decide to make it a record and they couldn't figure out how to master it with modern equipment so they had to go to you know the the top 3 mastering guys and some guy you know eventually figured out the puzzle and then what are you going to do with the release you can't promote it the same way with the like all the stuff about the nature of the songs, the nature of Bruce, how it fits into his catalog, the nature of technology at the time, the nature of his relationships with the band and with his management and ultimately with the record label around the sort of eight songs that are sitting there that will become born in the USA. The, the idea that so many people were like, all right, well, we'll wait and we'll work with him exactly how he wants to do this. Like there didn't seem to ever be, you know, they, I, I imagine there was nervousness, but, but they honored it. And it wasn't even a financial gamble. I think they were mostly concerned about, like, what's this going to do to Bruce? It, it could be, like, a kind of death knell. Right. It's so at odds with the marketplace. Right. It's so confusing to right. some fans. Right. Like, that's why I had, you know, that question. Why would you do this? Uh, it was 
powerful. Sometimes the artist has to do something that's all personal but, but, and completely at odds. But it wasn't like there was no precedent. I mean, you know, you know, he comes from, you know, he's over there where Columbia. I yeah. mean, you know, you know, you're making a folk record or even something that's off. I mean, they'd done it before. It was just the nature of that era, you know, because you're coming into the eighties. You, I don't think anybody had done it from that position. No, though. no, I guess you know, so. But yeah. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like. It wasn't totally. What the fuck is this? I think there was a fair amount of that. Yeah. I mean, because and that's why I set it up with the river and say, you know, number one album. Yeah, I get that. first top ten sure. single. Well, that's a it question. It was such a left turn. Why would he do this? But it wasn't like this stuff didn't make sense as music. It just asked for a lot from the listener. Right, but they knew that no matter what, that Bruce's people were going to get, they were going to buy it. Right? It went to number three. Right. So so they were going to buy it. So that means that, you know, the experience is going to be theirs. And, you know, I would imagine that many of them, you know, had your reaction. Some of them may have been confused, but I bet you a lot of people also had John Landau's reaction. Is Bruce okay? Yeah. And, and he, the incredible part is like, to just leave them with that. Sure. And and as you posit in the, you know, the 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 last third of the book is that in retrospect, whether it was intentional or not, or not, probably not, it was ultimately the the most genius lead-in to board in the USA that could have happened. Because that means that no matter what that Bruce that that album becomes essentially redemptive. It's like, to, you know, from afar, Nebraska is like just the pulling back of the bow. Right. <laughs> Born yeah. in the USA is the release, and that arrow just goes yeah. across yeah. counties. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Even with that title song being misunderstood. Yeah. Pri- primarily, because I've heard the, you know, I, I heard the, you know, that other mix of Born in the USA that's yeah. on the, uh, what it's The on, Nebraska version. Yeah, which yeah. is like heavy. yeah. Yeah, it's not flag waving. No. You know, so it's harder to misinterpret. And I think that's one reason Bruce said, I, in retrospect, I wish I had put put it on both records. Here's the Nebraska version. Here's the Born in the USA version. And then people wouldn't mistake Born in the USA but it's for not, something it wasn't. But it's not on Nebraska, is it? No, no. But he he recorded that version yeah. in the Nebraska session. Oh, okay. And it's, you know, it's so different in character. But yeah, you know, like one of the things that, that, and this is why, like, I want my sons to really hear Nebraska. Yeah, is like imperfection, the unfinished. Yeah, you know, a pitchy vocal, tempos going off. We in the digital era, we live in the time when the grid and the tweaked vocal. All these things are really easy to do, even at home. Twenty producers, dude, on some of these records. Yeah. So it's not to say that's bad and this is good, but Nebraska, why does it keep breathing over the decades? That's one reason is because we've lost contact with the depth of the human flaw, you know, mm-hmm. the the kind of emotional resonance sure. of the mistake. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, I had a conversation with my producer about how with the younger generation, you know, how vulnerability is seen as a a sort of fault. Yeah. I mean, the mistake is related to the vulnerability. Of course. And I've been in the studio myself, like you're sitting with an engineer and you see, you see right where your vocal's going off. And you're kind of like, I hope he fixes it before I have to, have to ask him to. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. But who wants to be the first person to just lay it all out there? But this record stands as, like, who would want to fix that? That's the other thing you learn from his biography and, and, and sort of his autobiography and some of the stuff that you talk about is that you really learn that, you know, just how fucking hard he, on himself he was. And, and, you know, I think that Nebraska is a release of that and, and an allowance of whatever the fuck he was beating the shit out of inside of himself to come out, you know, and have voices. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'd, I had to ask him, like, you're obviously going into a place of personal turmoil, uh, but yeah. you're not supposed to go there alone. And he said, I hadn't figured that out yet. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, some people... They're going to go alone no matter what, no matter yeah. what they know. I think certainly, yeah, he hadn't figured that out yet, but it, it wasn't an option and it wouldn't have happened had he figured it out. And you only figured it out, you know, after, you know, he had done everything that he could by himself and still not resolve the problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, thank God he didn't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And that like, and I like the the title of the book, Deliver Me From Nowhere, you know. Yeah, that's it. And I think it did, <laughs> for, at least for a little while. Yeah. And then the beautiful thing also about the, the title for me is yeah. that it shows up in more than one song. Yeah. You, you, another aspect of the unfinished is the, the lyrics are popping up in a few different places. Yeah. And, well, I think uh, that's interesting. It's unfinished, but also it's about process, right? There's such a level of exposure of craft yeah, here. Yeah. Like I think a lot of songwriters, uh, that was one of the takeaways. Is yeah. like you feel like you're in a Bruce writing session where nobody should be. Yeah. How the rest of the band feel about it? Uh, you know this this book was really uh, uh, so based I, yeah. around him. Yeah, I guess I'm going to uh, talk to him now that I think you know, back on it. Not about the reaction to it. Yeah, but I think he makes pretty clear that uh that it's that it's his show sure, sure. and and, oh, yeah, and yeah, he yeah. says you know from this point forward it's going to be sometimes i'm by myself sometimes with a band and he doesn't get to know which is going to be yeah, but when it, but it enabled him to to find himself in that zone you know without like whatever guilt he may have felt or whatever you know responsibility he might have felt to that group of guys who he'd known since he was a kid you know for him to you know to be able to to do to separate himself in this dark zone, again, that like not unlike it changing the way he constructed stories, it also changed the way he uh, you know made choices for himself around the band. You know, he does talk about that band staying together, and it's like he's got to trust his band. His band has to trust sure. him. Um, most bands don't make it past five years. Yeah, they must have done a lot of things right here. And you sure. know, I think that's indeed the case. Oh, yeah. And now, you know, Happy Bruce is out on the road, you know, he, dancing with people, yeah. having sing-alongs. It's, it's funny. Uh, you know, I dedicated this book to uh, to my old band. Yeah. Which was, um, you know, writing about Bruce, writing about Tom Petty. These are guys who spent a lot of time in bands. Yeah. And... Um, uh, we didn't get very far. Yeah. And most people don't get very far. Yeah. It, it, you know, I got that 
bachelor's degree, those two masters, the PhD, yeah. but the degree that counts more than any other yeah. for everything I've done yeah. was five years in the Del Fuegos. <laughs> you know, that, that, that built you. To, it, it left me with a whole lot of stuff to figure out. Yeah. And then life presented me with these incredible opportunities to figure some of it out. Like, trust me, to, to kind of dedicate a book to them, that took some doing. Yeah. To, so it took some processing for you, some letting go. A absolutely. But also to go, you know, where do bands start when people are very, very young? Sure. And the, most of them come from twisted backgrounds. But also, like, you're st also still trying to resolve your own stuff through music. I mean, you still do the work. Yeah. And it's odd to me that, you know, you became a teacher and a, and a, a, a sort of intellectual around these interests that you have. And your brother you know, does children's music. <laughs> you know, you're giving back the two of you somehow. <laughs> well, I like that take. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great talking to you, man. Great book. Thank you. That was fun, man. That was fun. I like talking about the old days, you know? Uh, you can get Deliver Me From Nowhere right now wherever you get books. And please hang out for a minute, will you? Hey, look, I'm sure you take a lot of vitamins. Maybe you take a daily multivitamin. Maybe you take ones to boost your immunity or ones to help with alertness. But what about your cells? Are you giving your cells the full nutrition they need, especially as we age? I am, thanks to Solgar. Solgar is part of my daily routine, thanks to their cellular nutrition line. Give yourself a daily collection of nutrients designed to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Visit CellularNutrition.SoulGuard.com to learn more and use promo code MarkMarin, all one word, to get 20% off. Folks, some of the best episodes of WTF had comedians as guests, particularly in the early days of the show. For full Marin listeners this week, we talked about 10 episodes from the first year of WTF where I sat down with a comic I knew and talked things out. This first episode I'm going to point out is episode 12. If people want to go back and find this, 12. episode 12 is with Nick Kroll. And do you want to know why this is significant? Can you tell me, Mark, why that's a significant episode? Chupacabra. It is not. It is not when he did Chupacabra. You had him back to do that. Oh, really? Yeah. Nick Kroll, episode 12, is the first interview you did in your garage. Really? Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. That's when I came back. I set up the mics. That was before the, the garage was even set up. Right. You just, just sat out there, there on like a desk, right? With, with two there was mics. a table. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the big mics were on the little stands. Mm -hmm. And I was going right into the power book. That's right. And right. yeah, there were just lamps and shit in there. Just, the shelves weren't in. I hadn't decorated. I don't even remember if I'd put the floor in yet correctly. I think I must have. I think the floor was in there, but it wasn't a, a, a functioning space. It wasn't really a workspace quite yet. Right. To hear that bonus episode and get ad-free access to all the episodes we talked about, sign up for the full Marin. Go to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. Next week on Monday, I talk to Smokey Robinson. And then on Thursday, I talk to writer and producer Amy Sherman Palladino. Let's jam.
lives, Monkey and La Fonda, Cat Angels Everywhere.